Like you can have an organizing principle to your life, which in, in yours, in my case is, is probably our faith where you allow that be the basic skeleton on which everything else in, you know, from your beliefs to your behavior kind of hangs off of. This is Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning novelist. Um, I'm a humorist. I'm a culture critic. I'm basically famous, except you've never heard of me. Call it internet famous if you want. This is the pilot episode for a podcast that's going to be called Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. And the purpose of this podcast is right there in the title. Um, It's to talk to people who have changed their minds about big, tribal, important things. So religion, politics... Uh, pop culture, history, philosophy, anything in that category. The reason for this is very simple because there is a perception somewhat backed up by scientific evidence um, that people never change their minds, even when presented with incontrovertible evidence that they are wrong. Um, And you can see this reflected in our current political discourse and especially on the hellhole that is called social media right now. I get into it I get into that a little bit more in the audio re- we recorded, so um, I'll let my uh, my past self talk about it a little bit more in a second here. Um, for this episode, I spoke to Kevin McClinathan. He is a colleague of mine. Um, we've both written extensively for a website called Christ and Pop Culture, which is a Christian culture criticism site. Um, it's pretty good. You should check it out. And he is also the host of or the co-host, I should say, of the podcast Seeing and Believing, um, which is uh, about a Christian approach to film and television. Um, it's great if you're a, both a Christian and a film nerd, um, or either just a Christian or just a film nerd. It's, it's, it's pretty good. It's a very serious approach to film that's not just about counting nipples and F-words. Um, so you should check it out. Um, for this podcast, though, we actually talked about his politics, um, and specifically how his views have changed on war. Um, He originally, early in life, had what you might call a a neoconservative view of war, that foreign wars are good, that they spread democracy, that sort of thing. And he has done not even a total 180, but um, he's basically in a different universe now in his views on war. Um, He identifies as a pacifist. And what you might call maybe a squishy pacifist, not an absolute pacifist, but a pacifist nonetheless. And we had a really interesting talk about how his exploration of the history of the Christian faith and his exploration of um, literature and cinema led him to that view. So without further ado, here is the talk I had with Clinton. Hi there, Internet, and welcome to the pilot episode of a podcast that I believe will be called Changed My Mind with Luke Harrington. Um, I'm Luke Harrington. I'm moderately famous. Not really. I wrote a book. A few people bought it. Um, That's about all I've done. Um, And I am here with um, Kevin McClinathan. Say hi, Kevin. Hello. Hello, Internet. Kevin is... um, a film critic in Chicago, and he is the host of the 
world famous podcast, Seeing and Believing, uh, the <laughs> podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. Um, I might as well take a second to say what my hopes, dreams, and goals are for this podcast. Um, and if it sucks, I'll just edit it out and post. Um, here's here's the reality of my life right now is that I pretty much hate everyone. <laughs> um, and a lot of that is the current political moment. And a lot of it is what a trash fire social media has turned out to be. Um, every time I get on a computer, I see people shrieking their opinions in the dumbest way possible. And even if it's an opinion I agree with, I often find myself wishing I didn't agree with it because the world is, uh, turned into just a nonstop fist fight. Um, part of that is social media. Part of that is a guy named Donald Trump. Um, but I am just really really um, pessimistic about the future of uh, democracy and the future of um, discourse and yeah, the future of, I don't want to say Western civilization because then I start sounding like a Nazi, but um, you get me. <laughs> I, I, I do. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, studies that have been catching media attention in the last few years about how nobody ever really changes their mind, even con even when confronted with conclusive evidence that proves them wrong. Um, and that actually, I mean, that seems to um, jive with my experience of people <laughs> and my experience of, uh, of the current state of political discourse. Um, so I'm just really curious about why and when people change their mind. We all know that this does happen. Um, and I just want to um, explore that possibility. So that is why the podcast is going to be called Change My Mind. Um, and what I'm going to do every week is have a new person on who changed their mind, hopefully about something significant or tribal. We won't, we won't talk just politics and religion. We might, might talk pop culture and history and philosophy and those sorts of things as well. Um, but the goal of this is to just find out why people change their minds. Um, and this is something of a research project and probably mostly therapy for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's get started. Um, Kevin McLinathan, a famous film critic from Chicago. Yes. Are you the reincarnation of Roger Ebert or, uh, I could only wish. Um, I would say that if, if you're moderately famous, I'm kind of whatever lies between uh, moderately famous and zero famous. So we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> you interviewed Oliver um, Stone on your podcast once. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it. I guess it kind of was in a lot of ways. It's it's weird with, I don't know, with, with podcasts, it's sort of, there's always this... Uh, you know, speaking frankly, there's always kind of this, this comparison thing, right? Like, you know, we interviewed Oliver Stone, but this other podcast, you know, talked to, you know, Michael Shannon or, <laughs> you know, Steven Spielberg or something. And then, you, you know, it's, it's sort of like, well, Oliver Stone just, you know, it was just one guy. I got it. Now I got to find another famous person to talk to in order to keep up my famous person cred. It's a lot easier just to sort of, you know, sit around and, and talk about movies with my co-host Wade and, and, you know, just not worry about it so much, but Hey, if, if you think that's that, 
we are a world famous podcast, I will definitely take it. I got to tell you, you in many ways are kind of living my dream life that I had maybe 10 years ago right now. I always, <laughs> always wanted to live in a major metropolitan area and be a film critic and that neither of those things ever happened, but <laughs> oh, wow. here well, we are. I, I do feel uh, pretty fortunate to uh, have the, the kind of life I do. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be doing the work I'm doing and, you know, I'm happy to be on a podcast with, with somebody now who, who sounds like he's got kind of a, a similarly pessimistic view of the current state of the world as I do. <laughs> like Wade is the optimist of seeing and believing. So, you know, I, I don't often sit down with somebody with a podcast mic and commiserate. So it's, this is going to be, this is going to be fun for me in a roundabout sort of way. I'm afraid that's going to be one of the strong temptations of this podcast is I'm going to want to have on people who agree with me about everything. Um, and I, I don't want to do that, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I decided to make you my first guest cause I knew you'd, I, I knew I could get along with you pretty well. Um, right so, on. uh, are you, I'm, I'm curious, are you like downtown Chicago? Where are you at in the Chicago area? So my wife and I live on the north side. So we're not in like downtown, downtown Chicago because we couldn't afford sure. that in a million years. But uh, <laughs> if, if people know where Wrigley Field is, we're probably like a, I don't know, 10, 10 or 15 minute uh, ride north of there. So the, the, uh, the neighborhood stomping grounds up around there, uptown, um, that's kind of where we are. Cool. All right, let's um, let's get down to get down to business here. Um, talk about what you changed your mind about. Um, my understanding is you you said you went from basically a leaning towards like a neoconservative sort of foreign policy to more of a basically straight pacifism. I'm curious about that. Um, yeah, give me the overview of that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know. A lot, and and maybe this is true of you too. Like a lot of us growing up in a certain branch of the evangelical subculture, uh, a lot of us grew up politically conservative, and with that comes a whole raft of of basically conservative positions. And you know, the Republican Party has been historically been very like pro military, um, very. Um, amenable to the use of the U.S.'s armed forces in various ways. And, you know, that was especially post 9-11. We you were all kind of growing up in an environment where the air we breathed was sort of like, you know, the military is good, support the troops. And of course, there's always World War II, which is the gold standard of a just war that needed to be fought. And we were the good guys in that fight, uh, ostensibly anyway. So, I kind of grew up around that, and um, I don't know if I have bloviated about this enough, but I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and Lord of the Rings <laughs> is also about like you know just war, and the heroes are warriors, and there's a lot of I don't know if glory is the right word, but there's definitely um, a sense that uh, those who are heroes or who are brave, there's there's a certain level of martial prowess that goes along with that. So. Growing up with all of this stuff, I was basically really, um, if I thought about it at all, I was very much like, yeah, war is 
not a great thing, but it's kind of heroic and sometimes it needs to be done. And that's good. That's, that's all really good. And that, um, that was a kind of a, an opinion I held for, you know, my entire life up until maybe my mid twenties. And, and that's, that's when I, I read Slaughterhouse Five. And that was the catalyst that made me move away from that a little bit. Cool. Yeah, I think um, I feel like a lot of those of us who grew up in or adjacent to evangelicalism in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s might have um, grown up kind of kind of assuming that right wing positions were the quote unquote Christian positions because the, mm-hmm. the Republican Party was very cozy with the evangelical church. Um, I feel and then oh, some of us maybe actually got around to reading the Bible and started leaning more to the left a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the, pro- that's the problem though, is that uh, I feel like right now about half the country seems to hate theologically conservative Christians and the other half kind of hates political leftists. So I feel like everybody hates me these days. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, you're, you're not wrong that the internet age has, brought some good things with it, but it has also just brought a discourse where it's sort of like everybody is just furious all the time about something. So it's, you know, I don't blame you for feeling that way. I want, I want to talk some more about, um, some more about your form of belief. Um, let's not beat around the bush. Are, are we talking about maybe, um, Bush's war in Iraq? Were you supportive of that or... What are we talking about here as far as militarism Well, uh, I mean, like the, the whole discussion of uh, the Bush administration's prosecution of the war in Iraq is, is kind of, it's almost a separate issue. And that was uh, a whole nother journey for me that, you know, maybe we'll get into, maybe we won't, but um, their use of the, the Bush administration's use of torture on, on terror suspects or suspected terrorists was um, when the truth about that kind of thing began to come out through various avenues. That was sort of what really turned me against the administration. But the my, my journey to being kind of pacifist leaning, I guess, began before that. And it was less of a partisan thing and more just sort of a waking up to what war actually is not the war that's sort of like thought of in terms of dates that you memorize in school or the debates that happen on the nightly news or something, but like actually, you know, what is the lived experience for war of war for both combatants and non-combatants? And like, what is it, what is, what is the experience of the battlefield like and what sorts of things convince large numbers of people that that is the the option that they need to turn to that sort of killing that sort of suffering the the madness of it i guess kind of the insanity of getting a whole bunch of people all in the same place and just killing each other until one side knuckles under that was something that i wasn't really thinking that deeply about in in a meaningful way i guess and reading slaughterhouse 5 which of course is this novel that is semi-autobiographical about Vonnegut's experience in the Dresden firebombings during World War II. Um, And the way he writes that book is so 
uh, very fatalistic and and humorous and very clear eyed about the the weirdness of what warfare actually is and and the very you know mundane realities of killing large numbers of people the Vonnegut's style and that subject matter kind of fit hand in glove and when I read that for the first time it was like nothing else I had ever really read before and it really made me uh, think in new ways about large-scale conflicts between nations and it was it was kind of that almost shifting onto a different train track in my thinking that led me to think more about the consequences of war and stuff like that uh, for for a Christian like me. And and that was kind of, I don't know, I, I guess the beginning of it. I feel like that's a really interesting contrast there between um, those, those two novels, Lord of the Rings and Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, I haven't, I haven't read Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, the only Vonnegut novel I've gotten around to is Cat's Cradle. I do feel like there's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a very strong contrast there because um, I mean, Lord of, Lord of the Rings is just so romanticized. I mean, and obviously it is, it's about elves and dwarves like fighting over a magic ring. How could that not be romanticized? Um, but one of the things that really struck me about Lord of the Rings, the more I thought about it was that there's this, you know, it's, it's this story of among other things, Sam and Frodo um, marching off to Mordor to destroy the ring. And it's very heroic and stuff, but the more you think about it, the more you realize just how miserable they would have mm-hmm. been the whole time. Yeah. Right. Like there's no, in, in real life, there's no such thing as an adventure, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you're off to Mordor to destroy the ring, okay, you're going to be freezing cold half the time, starving the whole time, you know, sleeping on the ground, nursing wounds, um, constantly afraid for your life. Right. Like it makes, it makes a great mm-hmm. story but it's not something that any of us would choose to go through given the, given the chance. And I, you know, I, I do think, I do think Tolkien addresses that some in the dialogue um, in Lord of the Rings, but it's, it's still, even if you, even acknowledging that there's still a necessary romanticization that's there just from the fact that you're reading the story for fun about this great war where, thousands and thousands of people and orcs and elves mm-hmm. and everything died. Well, I think what I, I don't mean to like necessarily set Lord of the Rings in opposition to Slaughterhouse Five. I think there there's a lot of complexity to the way Lord of the Rings tells its story, but it, it in terms of its moral worldview, it is very black and white. Like the the men and the elves are pretty much unambiguously good. And the orcs are essentially a faceless enemy, and you know it's it's not only justified, but also in in a way morally right to exterminate the orcs because they are just they're fundamentally evil in the same way that Sauron is is fundamentally evil. So e- even though there's a lot of complexity, I think to the way Tolkien draws out the nature of power and um, the the Christian virtue of of strength and weakness, um, I. I you know, I love those books to death, and I think there's a lot to draw out there. But in terms of war, it is a little bit more um, black and white. And with Slaughterhouse Five, I think that um, revealed to me that 
in real life, there isn't really, you know, a Mordor and the elves, you know, there's, there's not really a situation where one side is unambiguously good and one side is unambiguously evil. It's sort of more, there, there are more gray areas than that. And that's something that honestly really hadn't occurred to me when I was younger was the idea that the country that I'm living in, just because it might be, might've been justified in going to war in world war two that doesn't necessarily follow that the methods it used to prosecute that war were justified. And it doesn't necessarily follow that every war we've been involved in has been justified. And so that kind of complication of the moral underpinnings of large-scale conflict was something that I began to explore in a lot more detail once I started thinking uh, harder about that kind of stuff. Let's talk some more about Slaughterhouse-Five. Um for people who haven't read the book, can you give us maybe the the one minute summary? Uh, yeah. So the the book begins with this prologue where it where it's you know it's an autobiographical prologue where Vonnegut talks about um, sitting around with uh, an old comrade of his who was in the war and they were discussing it and the conversation turns to just kind of how how insane it was and how. For them, at least, their their experience of it wasn't sort of the the valorized version that John Wayne movies were were later uh, made out of that kind of narrative. And after that prologue, he jumps into this story about a character called Billy Pilgrim. And Billy Pilgrim, you know, the famous first line is Billy Pilgrim had become unstuck in time. And so we follow this character as he kind of bounces around. Uh, from his experiences during the firebombing of Dresden in World War II to his experiences uh, being abducted by aliens and and, uh, confined on an alien planet, Um, back to his life as an uh, optometrist on Earth, uh, to a, a plane crash that he's involved in, his marriage. He witnesses life, death. And the character of Billy Pilgrim is kind of this, he's almost this passive character, like, as he's unstuck in time, it's almost like he's unmoored from the way all of us experience life, which is a sequential series of events where we're sort of the main characters and we kind of have a point of view on, on everything that happens to us. Whereas Billy Pilgrim, because he's ricocheting around events from his life, from the past to the future, back to the past into his present he has this more fatalistic view of things just happen and people can't really control what happens to them. It's it's not a nihilistic uh, book, but the way that Vonnegut tells the story of Billy Pilgrim suggests that it's almost like an Ecclesiastes view of, view of life. Like life is complex. No one can understand it. You can't even control what happens to you most of the time. So, you know, it's all meaningless. You know, it's, it's, it's basically Kurt Vonnegut's version of the book of Ecclesiastes and told, told through this sci-fi um, time travel sort of conceit. I think we all are Billy right now. <laughs> we all are. I feel that. I feel that. Um, I feel like if I were, you know, the typical Fox News viewer, um, I would respond to that with, well, the victim mentality (laughs) will make a victim of anyone. Billy needs to step up and pull himself up by his bootstraps and take charge and be a hero or something. Um, 
I think Vonnegut writes him in a way where he's he's neither sympathetic nor unsympathetic to Billy Pilgrim. It's more like he just is observing Billy Pilgrim as Billy Pilgrim observes the world around him, which is to say very almost dispassionately, maybe a little bit mournfully. You know, there's that famous refrain that Vonnegut keeps returning to over and over throughout the book. So it goes like he'll say something like during the firebombing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died. So it goes. And then he'll say something like um, Billy Pilgrim dropped a spoon that he was using on the floor and it got dirty. So it goes. And, and sort of like the way that he returns that over and over it's funny and then it's also deeply sad and it's it's very um egalitarian like everything is just so it goes everything in life from the smallest uh tragedy to the largest tragedy is just sort of like that's kind of just life and who can make sense of it let's go back to you though um how old were you when you said when you said you changed your mind about this is this like high school This was, this was, I I can't remember exactly when I read Slaughterhouse Five. I think it was during one of the summers uh, between years at college. So I was, I was in my early twenties, I think. You read in the summer, you nerd. (laughs) Hey, you know, you gotta, gotta do something to, to spice up your, your summer job, right? Remind me when you, when you would have been in college. So you, you said this was before the Iraq war. Uh, it was the, the Iraq war started while I was at college. So, um, I, I remember very distinctly nine 11 happened. You know, I was, I had only been at college for about three weeks when, when nine 11 happened. Um, so that was a very memorable freshman year. I'll definitely say that. And then I graduated in Oh five, which was, I think like a, about a year and a half after the war in Iraq began in earnest. If, if I'm remembering correctly, I'm a little bit fuzzy on the exact dates. I would have been in my my senior year of high school when when the Iraq War started, um, and I, I just remember when Bush first brought up Iraq. I was like, "What are you even talking about? That makes no sense. <laughs> Why are we doing this?" But then the you know the anti war protests started, and I just I found the anti war crowd so obnoxious that I started. I, I became like a vocal proponent of the war um, because that's the way my high school brain worked. You mm-hmm. know, um, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm fighting that instinct to just, just be contrarian to cheese off the people that are annoying me. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm fighting that instinct every day of my life. Um, do you feel like your reasons for being more of a war hawk, were, were they, do you feel like you, they were more quote unquote logical, more quote unquote emotional, more just because you absorbed the thinking of the people around you. What, what would you, how would you describe it? Well, you know, it's, it's really tempting for me to say like, you know, it was all just something I absorbed You know, it's all my parents fault or all the evangelical subcultures fault. It would be nice for me to say that, but I think the reality is I just wasn't thinking all that much about it. It was sort of like I'd, I'd grown up that way. And that was a, it, it was a choice that I made to not really question uh, a lot of the received wisdom that, that had come down to me. Like there, it was, 
it was, well, now, now I'm, I'm trying to think back to what the mindset was of Kevin, of college age Kevin. I, <laughs> in a lot of ways, it's a scary, dark place to be. Um, oh, <laughs> but I know that feeling. I, I remember distinctly, uh, you know, back back in the old days before social media, when AOL Instant Messenger and online message boards were a thing, you know, where, where we talked about ideas on websites that weren't Facebook or Twitter. Um, I do. I, I really remember um, passionately arguing in favor of the invasion of Iraq, partly because, you know, like all Americans, we, we had been lied to and told that there were weapons of mass destruction there, but also partly because um, there was an idea in my head that sort of the U.S., the United States knows best. And even if we don't get everything perfect all the time, you know, Iraq certainly couldn't be any worse off under us than they would have been under Saddam Hussein. That was my thinking at the time. And so that was the attitude I brought to a lot of the current events and maybe just kind of my whole philosophy of, of war in general is just like, well, as long as the country whose side you're fighting on are the good guys, as long as they're basically trying to do the right thing, then you're basically golden. Like what are, you know, what possible argument could you have against the elves and the men toppling Sauron? Like what is, <laughs> like, what is the counter argument to that? And, you know, I, I feel a degree of, I don't know if shame is the right word, but I do feel um, chagrin that that was, that I was kind of so thoughtless as to, approach the subject in, in that sort of way. Um, and I, I don't know if that's just me or if that's, you know, just part of the process of growing up that everyone goes through. But, you know, I wasn't one of those, one of those kids who like in high school was rebelling against my parents or rebelling against anything, really. I was really pretty straight-laced kid. And so the the concept of mistrusting those in authority over me was actually pretty foreign to me. So... I didn't really learn how to think that way until I started kind of opening myself up to mostly books and films that challenged that in, in a pretty gentle way, I guess. Like I have lot my share of online arguments about these kinds of issues with other people. And it always, it ended the same way that anyone who's been in a Facebook argument knows it ends. Like everybody just kind of entrenches themselves in their opinions. Maybe some everybody names. And angrier until they yeah. give up and leave. <laughs> they give, they give up and leave or, you know, it, it stops being about trying to convince the other person and just becomes more about like, I want to score the best rhetorical point. Sure. And that's the way those, those conversations went. And, Nobody was ever really convinced, um, and I wasn't really convinced. It was really uh, other, like books like Slaughterhouse Five and movies like the documentary Taxi to the Dark Side, which is about the Bush administration's use of torture, that kind of got under my skin, made me start thinking about, well, maybe the people in authority over me aren't completely correct. Maybe I should actually like think a little bit more carefully about how I'm receiving this information and why I want to believe it. And 
making that realization was a turning point. And of course, this is a process that went on for, you know, it wasn't sort of like a eureka moment, but it was incremental steps um, toward a destination that I hadn't really even been aware existed until, uh, you know, my early 20s. Sure, sure. Yeah, I was absolutely that kid in in my senior year of high school. Um, which which kid the the rebellious one or the the one just accepting what people in authority told him? Uh, <laughs> I was I was gonna say I was I was absolutely the kid who just argued just to argue. Um, you know, basically I was I was a vocal Iraq War supporter just to quote unquote own the libs would be the modern. Modern <laughs> nobody calls it nobody called it that back then but that was that was definitely my motivation uh, it was a more innocent time my version of being rebellious in high school was shopping at hot topic that was um that was my rebellion um <laughs> for for whatever it's worth i wasn't cool enough even to shop shop at hot topic so i'm not oh, uh, no no judgment you were stuck at spencer gifts huh <laughs> uh, I was I was stuck in in whatever my mom brought me probably. <laughs> you seem like a Banana Republic kind of guy. That would be my guess about you. <laughs> yeah, I I I honestly I I wouldn't even know. It's probably like yeah, I I I probably couldn't even tell you what I wore. I wore lots of I wore lots of Christian t-shirts. I was known as the kid at school who had all of the the Christian t-shirts like the Yo Caro Taco Bell the you know the parody of the old Chihuahua who did the Taco Bell commercials. Only mine was Yo Caro Jesus. So you know it was I was really I was ministering to lost souls with those T-shirts. Yeah, I mean, what speaks to people's soul more than chalupas? I mean, I, I know that's what speaks to my soul. Those things are delicious. <laughs> oh man, you can you can have them. I I can't I can't take Taco Bell. My, my body rejects it. Um, but that's, uh, that's, that we're, we're getting a little bit off topic there, but no, I get you. I get you. Um, and ev- ev- you know, eventually if you're the, the outspoken Christian kid and the outspoken Bush supporter, I think eventually you have to come around to, um, you know, what, it, what does it mean that I'm following the guy who says, blessed are the peacemakers and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs for war at every turn. <laughs> Um, let's talk some more about, um, your pacifism. Would you say pacifism is the right word or how would you describe your, your current beliefs? Well, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would call myself like a 100% pacifist. I would say that to really justify that label, I would have to hold some, some positions that I, you know, that I I find compelling, but that I I don't think are, are quite, Realistic. I, I would say I'm, I'm a near pacifist in that most warfare, most armed conflict between nations, I would I would say is is unnecessary, and that a, not enough is being done at a level of diplomacy and government to avoid our armed conflict. I do admit the the possibility that in certain cases a just war can be waged. Um, that there there are times that there can be times and there have been times where a large scale armed conflict between armies is is justified and is necessary in order to prevent grave 
injustice from being done to the weak or to those who can't defend themselves. So that's not really a hardcore pacifist position. Like a, a, a real pacifist would probably like judge me a little bit for, <laughs> for that. They would see like, oh, you call yourself a pacifist? Yeah, not really. Um, so while I'm not a complete pacifist though, I'm definitely very uncomfortable with um, a mentality that is very cavalier with the use of, of armed force. And I'd say that the the current atmosphere in the U.S. where even hinting that you might not be 100% pro-military and that you might want to see us spend less money on our armed forces as a whole, like that's kind of, you know, you, you will not find a single politician who will proudly and loudly say something like that because that's just not the way that's not where we are as a culture right now that's the next place i was i was going to go with that because um i'm curious in the current political landscape of the u.s how is that sort of pacifism expressed like what what does that lead you to do and i you know i asked that from a very personal place because i i feel like someone who is not represented at all <laughs> by the current slate of political options um, mm-hmm. so I mean, I mean, pol- politically, practically, pers- even, even personally, like what, what does that mean for you? How is, how is that expressed actively? Uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I wish I had an answer to this that made me look really good. Right. Like I, I wish I, I could say that I'm, you know, that I'm demonstrating against the military or that there, there's something really principled and visible that I, that I'm doing right now. And, and to some extent, I mean, like circling back to what we were saying about the, you know, about the social media landscape, there is this sense that we're living our entire lives in public and that only actions that are observable from the outside really matter. And I think that's part of where my, uh, reticence comes, comes from with, um, answering the question is that I don't really do anything. Like I don't, have pictures of myself at protests. I don't have, I, I don't, at, at least my, my personal philosophy with social media use is I just don't really talk that much about politics. I don't, I, I intentionally abstain from stuff that can lead down that kind of very pitched political debate that happens so often on Facebook and Twitter, just because I don't think it's productive and I, and it, makes me feel bad about myself and about other people. So I just don't do it. But that also means that I am not really putting my voice forward as a voice for change. And so I want to be like upfront about that from the beginning that I'm not really doing as much as perhaps I should in order to move the culture in my own small way towards a less pro-war stance. It's also complicated a little bit because I do have um, members of my family who I care about very much who are involved with the military or with um, the U.S. Department of Defense in some way. You know, the, the, um, the U.S.'s war readiness isn't just a function of, you know, like the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. There's a whole apparatus that goes into that, the military-industrial complex, all of it. And there are people I care very much about who 
you know, are employed or otherwise involved in those areas. And I don't, I'm not on board with a mindset that demonizes those people simply for doing what they feel is right. So that kind of makes things a little bit complicated, I guess, because I don't really know how one holds those two things in tension while also fulfilling one's responsibility to stand up for, uh, in, in my case, uh, principles of, of, if not 100% committed pacifism, at least pacifism adjacent principles. I, I'm still kind of trying to work that out myself and... I don't know. I guess the that's a long way of saying that I don't know if I have a good answer to that question. Well, sure. I mean, I, and I get that that there's this this whole um, cultural attitude in in America of if you don't support the wars, then you don't support the troops, um, which mm-hmm. is very strange. You know, because the it's not it's not it's not the soldiers out on the front lines who are deciding who and when and who we go to war with. Um, does that make sense? When and who, when we go to war and who we go to war with? It's a complicated question though, right? Like you, it, it's, it's difficult to have a conversation in today's day and age where you, where, where it is okay to simultaneously express a, a, an, an opinion or a principle, but also be open to the fact that you might be wrong about it or that other people aren't necessarily wrong or the enemy for, for disagreeing with you. That's kind of, it, it's becoming difficult, more and more difficult, at least for me to find a place where that kind of posture is, is possible. And I don't really think that anyone has really cracked that, that code yet. Although there are probably people who are closer than I am. <laughs> I want to poke at this a little more, um, get you to define your quasi-pacifism a little more clearly for me. Would you say that, um, are you like opposed to the, the U.S. having a standing army or a standing military, I should say, or are, are you are you kind of okay with the idea that countries need some sort of military to keep the peace? How, how would you, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? I am okay with, I, I'm okay in theory with things like standing armies, weapon stockpiles, in theory at least. Like there, it, it's it's a it's a position where like you kind of have to hold intention. In an ideal world, it would be this. In a world where there are bad actors, it might require shifting a little bit. I do think that the U.S.'s military capabilities are that are maybe bloated would be a, a apropos word. Like we have far more military <laughs> capability than we actually need, um, and our uses of the capability we have right now have been mostly unjustified and a waste of both resources and lives. So. In the real world in which we live, 2019, the practical version of of what I would advocate for, at least, would be a massive reduction in the size of our armed forces, much less military spending, and far less um, unilateral intervention overseas. 
Um, that is uh, not a position that like that's not a very radical position. I don't feel like, but I think that by the standards of our current government, and I don't mean that in just a Republican sense. I think a Republican and Democrat sense. There's very little appetite for that kind of action or reform. So, you know, I think that maybe before we talk about, you know, abolishing standing militaries entirely, even stepping down the amount of money we spend on our military and the number of people that we have in uniform at any given time, maybe that's a conversation we should be having first. Well, and it also, um, it, it, it's a lot of resources that go towards the building of a war machine that could go to a whole range of other things that promote justice every bit as much as having the ability to stop bad actors on the world stage. There are all sorts of social programs, uh, ways to help out the, you know, the citizenry that we can't really afford right now because we're spending you know billions or trillions of dollars on... Uh, a military that we don't really need, or at least that I would argue that we don't really need. And, and that's, that's, I think, part of the, the pacifist argument as well, is that the, the drive towards war obviates a whole range of issues that are unjust and that could be attended to if we weren't all you know, so focused in a completely different direction. Okay, I want to get back to... Um to you a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you said, you've said a couple of times now that, um, you know, the reason you were relatively pro-war to begin with was, um, because of the, you know, kind of the religious and social milieu you came of age. And I'm, I'm curious if you have, you know, what, what you might call a coming out story, quote unquote, <laughs> of, you know, saying, saying to family and friends who you previously agreed with that, Hey, I'm, I'm not into, uh, military adventurism anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, if that, if you have any moments like that. Um, that's a good question. There was, there, there definitely wasn't this big, this singular moment, I guess, where that kind of conversation happened, at least, uh, in my family, it's been more of a series of conversations where the the boundaries of, say, my worldview and and my parents' worldview have been pretty clearly delineated in a way that's been mo- like pretty productive. I I thought I've been really blessed to have two parents who are who not only love me but are also very level headed when it comes to disagreeing with others. Like I, I can actually sit, have conversations with my parents where we disagree sharply with each other, but the, the emotions don't run so high that rifts open up. And I realize that that's not the experience of a lot of people. And that, you know, it, it's, it's something that I'm very thankful for. Um, I do think that it was probably there. There was a significant conversation when I was uh, home for the holidays, soon after graduating from college, and I was sort of like, you know, underemployed. It was you know just on the eve of the financial crisis, so you know that whole thing was about to to come crashing down. Um, so I wasn't um, 
self-sufficient by any means. Uh, and, but I remember coming home for the holidays and, and spending time with my parents and we were talking about, uh, uh, the torture of, of suspected terrorists or, or enemy combatants that we, that we now know, uh, from a congressional report did happen, was, was planned out and was signed off by, on by people at the highest level. And, in that conversation, which took place in the car on the drive back from the airport, um, that was maybe when I expressed certain viewpoints that came as a surprise to to my parents, and there there was a little bit of adjusting to that 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 took almost the entirety of that two hour drive because we live in New, we we live in New Mexico, so the airport is literally like two hours away from our house. Um, <laughs> So lots of time to have those sorts of conversations if you feel so inclined. Isn't New Mexico just a giant flat desert? Can you land a plane anywhere? Why do you guys even need an airport out there? It's it's a <laughs> it's a high altitude desert. It is definitely not flat though. Lots of mesas and canyons and and whatnot. I really wish though that that drive to Albuquerque was not necessarily not not necessary every time I want to to visit home. <laughs> um, anyway, go on, go on. You were, you were saying you, you had a, you were having a conversation with your parents on the way to the airport. Yeah. And, and it was, it was a conversation probably as heated as, as it ever got where, uh, I couldn't believe some of the things that, that I was hearing and they probably on their end couldn't believe some of the things they were hearing out of me. And that was, um, it wasn't the first time that that kind of gulf between what uh, they expected me to think and what I actually thought had been had been realized. I mean, like I grew up hardcore uh, Presbyterian, and I'm Anglican now, which is you know high church. That kind of thing is tantamount to Catholicism, which we don't do in the Presbyterian Church. Um, so, so that was maybe that. Tr- adjustments prepared the ground for later adjustments with my, with my political views. (laughs) Um, So maybe that's why it's been as relatively smooth as it has been. But I do remember that being a time where I, I kind of, during that conversation, I kind of had to take a breath and, and say myself, these are still my parents. They haven't actually changed and in, in a lot of ways, I was the one that who changed and moved away from who they thought I was. And I kind of had to learn over time to extend grace to them in that moment. And maybe that was a an experience that helped me extend grace to others with whom I disagree. I don't know. That might be a little bit too too grandiose, though. But I, I that that's about as dramatic as my story gets. I've been extremely lucky in the way that my, my family has, has treated my, uh, evolving views on various subjects. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you and I had a very similar, um, experience of kind of growing up in a lower church tradition, finding our way to a tradition much more in touch with the whole 2000 year Mm -hmm. history of Christianity and realizing that basically the entire Republican party platform would be completely alien to any of the church fathers um, and even to an extent, the reformers. Um, So, yeah, I feel that I feel that in my soul. Um, All right, let's, let's, um, let's keep, 
keep talking about you and your experience because that's that's really what I want the the focus to be on for the podcast. Um, obviously, aside, aside from this big big change of of mind, change of position on war, um, what would you what would you say you learned from the experience of of changing your mind on this? I think. I mean, I don't know if it's a cliche at this point to say something like this, but a lot of I, I I learned that for me at least, art was a really great way to let my views be well. Let, let me let me back up a little bit and think about this for a second. I think. I think that the longer that I've been alive and have had time to even just yeah, like because changing your mind about something is such a process, right? It doesn't usually happen just in a flash. It happens over the course of months or maybe even years. And the more times that happens to me and the more time I've had to allow that to happen to me, I've found that it's something that doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be all that dramatic. Like you can have an organizing principle to your life, which in in yours, in my case is, is probably our faith where you allow that be the basic skeleton on which everything else in, you know, from your beliefs to your behavior kind of hangs off of, uh, I don't, I guess that maybe that's not how a skeleton works. I don't think things actually literally hang off of skeletons, but you get my point. Like there's, there's, you have a structure in place and the things that become formed around that structure don't have to get set in stone. Like, uh, I started off thinking a certain way about one thing, but as time has gone on and I found myself evolving on that, it doesn't have to be something where I have to frame it as a conversion issue or as something that is necessary for all people to evolve in that same way. And that has maybe helped me cope a little bit more with finding myself in some ways very far from the person I was when I was younger and also cope with the the fact that you know there are lots of people who I greatly respect, who I love, who are not going to come around to the same things that I've come around on, and that's okay, I guess. Having that kind of peace about peace, having that kind of peace and confidence about the shifts that I experience over time has been honestly really empowering and has helped mostly keep me calm in the social media age. I've had my share of times where I've done and said regrettable things when typing away at a keyboard, but it's mostly helped keep me sane, helped me be a little bit more philosophical about how how others treat me and and how I treat them over ideological disagreements. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, right? <laughs> yeah, put that on a on a t shirt with a the Taco Bell Chihuahua. I'll, I'll wear that around. For a didn't while. didn't Socrates do that? 
<laughs> Socrates famed t-shirt slogan maker. <laughs> yes. That's, that's how I remember the story of Socrates. Um, so we've, we've touched on this a, a bit. Would you say you're, would you say you're somewhat quote unquote evangelistic about this view or do you, do you not care about converting quote unquote, converting people to your point of view? I, I tend not to be ev- super evangelistic about most of my views. And I, I'm not, I'm not sure whether that's a virtue or not. I, I, I'm not sure if I should be more evangelistic about such things. I'm not right now. The things that I tend to be the most evangelistic are in the grand scheme of things, rather silly, like movies. You know, I, I'm, I'm a cinephile, a, a film critic. I love them and I want other people to love them too. So I could be evangelistic about that, about my various nerdy preoccupations the use of the Oxford comma, I guess I'll be a little bit uh, doctrinaire about that, maybe. But that's all like, like the, the, that's all like silly stuff, right? The, the, the paradoxically, the really important stuff, like uh, positions on abortion, on on pacifism, on uh, political engagement. That stuff that I tend to be a little bit more live and let live about. And I, you know, I, I'm not sure what that says about me, but I guess that's where I am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the older I get, the more I, the more I read, the more I realize that, um, morality and, and, um, uh, piety, I guess are, are things that have to start from within, um, that the only, the only thing I really can do is to uh, approach life with a degree of, of humility and try to, I don't, I don't know, live, live the best life I can. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. know. I mean, I guess that's probably for, for believers that that's where prayer comes in. You know, if, if change does come from within, you know, you're not going to, the, the Facebook argument is not coming from within. That is about the most external alienating from yourself experience you can have. Right. And so I, I guess not spending my energy in that area seems to be the wisest thing to do. And, and praying more is something I should be doing more. Sure. Let me actually push back on that for a second though. And I don't, I don't know if, if I, if this is what I really believe or if I'm just, I'm just trying to get your thoughts on it. But, um, what I've heard from a few people, um, is that the social media argument or maybe even the argument in real life is not so much about convincing the person you're arguing with as it is convincing the silent bystander, the fence sitters, you know, the people who, you know, have a more open mind to that. What would, what would you say to that? I mean, I think that that's a fair perspective to take and that is probably a thing that is possible to happen, but I don't know that I'm fully convinced that it's something that can be forced, right? Like I've, We've all kind of seen those discussions go where it's kind of obvious that what you're witnessing isn't a discussion 
or even a debate, but more, more um, two people posturing for onlookers. And I think that this, that's, that's something that maybe doesn't happen as much in face-to-face encounters where you can't really craft your, your image as uh, completely as you can in a situation where it's completely text-based. Like if I'm sitting in a room at a party and I'm having a debate with someone, then, you know, the way that I carry myself and conduct myself and articulate my ideas are a lot more unvarnished. And in that sense, the way that somebody receives that might be like, there might be truer to the reality of the exchange, right? Like I can't make myself in the heat of an in-person face-to-face conversation look any better than I actually am. Like I'm much more likely to just have it all hang out, so to speak. Online, because it's, you know, it's a composed format where you are, you know, crafting a response, sending a response, have the ability to edit your response. There's a level of artifice there that I think can be unproductive and can lead to kind of this David Foster Wallace sense of like observing yourself, observing yourself, observing yourself, having a conversation and just get so wrapped up in self-presentation and what is my real goal with this conversation. And I don't think that that are you, are you implying that I go through all my old social media arguments and read my posts again and again and congratulate myself for how witty and smart I am. <laughs> that is absolutely not something I do, sir. And I will have, you know, that I am, I am not saying that, Oh, I wouldn't ever dream of it. I, I certainly have never done that myself. I certainly have never edited the same comment five to six times to make sure that it is worded exactly the way I think it should be worded. An editor who is a huge nerd might do that, but certainly not me. (laughs) All right. I am, I have three questions I kind of want to ask everybody who comes on the show. Um, just general philosophical questions. Um, it's it's kind of three, three do you believe questions. So first of all, do you believe in identity? Um, I guess define what you mean <laughs> by that. That's a very broad question. <laughs> And the whole po- the whole point is not to define it to make you squirm and give a anyway. oh, okay that's, that's 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 fine do you, do you, do you believe in i do you believe that everyone has a core identity and their core identity is vital to them and hmm. where does identity come from okay well that that's that's helpful actually um I do believe I did. I do believe that there is there is a core to every person. I think that there is every person has something intrinsic to themselves that is 100% unique that that is not completely similar to any other person. I don't believe that it is possible for us to know what that is, <laughs> at least not in its entirety. Do you mean it's not possible to know what another person's identity is, or it's not possible to understand the, the concept, the abstract it's, concept? Of 
identity. It, it's it's not possible to fully understand yourself. I think that any person who claims to understand themselves with 100% certainty, like this is who I am, this is 100% what I believe, um, this, you know, I, I understand myself to the depth of my being. I've plumbed everything there is to be plumbed in my own soul. I don't think that that is, I don't think that's possible. And I would say that it's not to put too fine a point on it, borderline delusional <laughs> to, to honestly believe that, which isn't to say that it's impossible to know oneself, but I don't think that's going to happen this side of eternity. Um, I think only as things stand now, only God truly knows the human heart. And I don't think anyone can know the heart of another human being. And that would go for their own heart. And this is a follow-up question that you, I mean, we've talked about it already, but where would you say you draw your identity from? I mean, (laughs) I know the Sunday school answer to this. Um, I mean, the the Sunday school answer would be that my identity comes through Christ. I, you know, I'm a, a good creation of God who is fallen, but has been redeemed through uh, Christ's death and resurrection. That's kind of like the the answer that I would give if I was being tested or if I were trying to catechize somebody or like teach them what the basics of belief are. In a more practical sense. If you and I were just laying out in this, the park somewhere and we had each smoked a few joints, what would you say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, under those circumstances, I don't, I don't even know. I think that there's, we're made of stardust, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically there's, I don't know. I think one reason, okay. One reason why uh, the making of art and the telling of stories will never stop is there's this infinite complexity to to the self and to humanity writ large um, that uh, makes it, it, it's this never-ending feedback loop where you can always discover new things about yourself and about others. You'll never get to the bottom of yourself and others, though, and that's part of what makes it fun. And that's also part of what makes proclamations about who I am so much fun to make because mm-hmm. who I am today might not be who I am five years from now, but that doesn't make the person who I was you know, five years in the past any less me. I don't know. There's, there's this really great film, and here's where I'm going to be the boring film critic again. <laughs> There's this really great film called The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which incidentally, now that I think about it, is a pretty interesting film to watch if you want to think about issues of of warfare and and how they act upon a person because the main character is a soldier. But the larger idea of the film is it basically follows this soldier, the, um, the main character, from his time as, you know, this, this, this young confident guy in the army, uh, to this really old seasoned veteran who has become a Colonel and has seen multiple wars. And over the course of the film, he's, he's been played by the same actor throughout the entire film. He's just been wearing makeup 
And over the course of the film, he changes so much. He goes from being that cocky youngster to being this war-weary older gentleman. And yet what the movie says about him is that even though he's changed so vastly over the course of decades, he's never stopped being fully himself. And I think that's kind of a really interesting, wonderful, maybe frightening mystery about humanity is you you are always yourself. You never get away from who you are, but there are so many multitudes that the the self can contain and that can come out over the course of years that uh, you you can change so much without ever becoming untrue to yourself and who you were. I feel that. I dig that. That's really good stuff. Really um, makes me feel validated as someone who's written a couple of novels that no one bothered to read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, I, it, since, we're, since we're talking about that, I, I do have to say I had an experience kind of like this where I grew up thinking, oh, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a writer, right? Like I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be the novelist. I'm going to write the the next Lord of the Rings or, or whatever. And <laughs> It's going to win awards, and that's that's who I'm going to be. And then I went to college, and I discovered that I don't really have the self-discipline or, frankly, the imagination to write <laughs> novels in that way. Uh, I took a note. I took a class my senior year on. It, it was a novella class, and the whole idea of the class was we were supposed to write um, the first three chapters of a novella, and the final project was to. Um, send those chapters off to to a publisher and sort of like say you know make make it a book pitch more or less and cool. I remember writing that third chapter and of course I, I took the class because I thought of myself as a writer not because I actually <laughs> had a novel like I didn't have a novella in me I just took it because I thought it's the sort of class that I should take so you know the 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 night before the final project is due, I'm sitting there and I'm like trying to work on this third chapter and it's not coming together. And it's all bad because I didn't have anything really to bring to the table. And so I went out into the living room and laid face down on the couch and literally just wanted to die because in that moment I was like, this is what I should have been. This is what I've been doing my entire college career, right? Is trying to become a writer and obviously, I'm not really cut out to be the sort of person that I thought I should be. And that that realization was kind of a dark moment. But it was also after having that realization, it was sort of this freedom of like, oh, I don't, I don't have to be that person. Who else can I be? And and I moved on with my life as, and and now I'm on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, um, the, I think it's it's a common experience of wannabe writers of having this very romanticized idea in their head of what being a writer is. And then you actually try to do it and you realize, oh, no, wait, it's like 98% drinking way too much coffee, staring <laughs> at a screen, hating yourself, your house is a mess. <laughs> getting, getting up at 4 a.m., for exactly. example. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's literally my life. I, I get up at 4am and I, I write every day. And then most of what I write is garbage, but you write garbage so that you can rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it until it's not garbage anymore. 
Um, yeah, see, that's something you that's something you can do, and that's something that I thought I could do and discovered that I couldn't. <laughs> and that's part of growing up, kids. I mean, you 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 do that with your uh, film reviews, though, don't you? Re- rewrite it a few times. I mean, yeah, I mean, writing <laughs> writing is very difficult for me. I'm really I I I'm not a good writer, by which I mean that I don't have this sort of discipline that good writers tend to have where they just, you know, you keep at it and you just, you just do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not as good at that as I would like to be. I'm trying to get better, but writing is difficult for me. And no, no, you know, regardless of whether it's a a novel or a, or a film review. So, I mean, I get, I, I don't. That's why you podcast because you can just kind of shoot from the hip and then edit it after the fact and you're done. Me, I'm not saying that, but I'm not not saying it. It's actually you don't you don't even edit your podcast because yeah, we have somebody else do that for us. Yeah, that sounds like a sweet deal. It's it is pretty sweet. I'm not gonna lie. Maybe if this podcast takes off and I have money someday, I can I can do that. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on from identity because um, we talked about that way longer than I intended, which is fine because it was an interesting conversation. Let's talk about human nature. Do you believe in human nature? Are we just kind of the way we are? Are we all the same? Um, is there hope for improvement of the species, or are are we all blank slates? What do you think? Um, you know, I, I I had a okay. We we've been talking talking crap about social media this entire episode, but I'm about to cite a a conversation I had on social media as a positive thing. So, you know, here, here we go. Um, (laughs) I was, I was talking to um, Richard Clark, uh, who's, who's with Christiane today. Maybe a lot of your listeners are familiar with him um, about, I don't even remember exactly what we were talking about now, but the, the question came up of, you know, is, is anything redeemable? And my response to that was uh, long answer, yes, short answer, no. And I think that kind of applies to the question about human nature. I think that humans are, they are good creations of God. I don't think there's any hope for us outside of Christ. And, you know, looking at, around at the way the world is right now, it just, it does seem like we're kind of spiraling down into self-destruction and uh, satisfying our basest appetites. And technology is um, assisting us in that at rates and at rates and in amounts that were previously unimaginable. So basically I do think we're doomed and I think it's because human nature is just inherently selfish and inherently fallen. I don't think that's entirely hopeless because we do have Christ, but I'm also not, I'm a pessimist by nature. So I don't have a very rosy view of, of human nature in general um, and I think a lot of that maybe what has been informed by writers like Vonnegut, who had a very jaundiced view of humanity himself. Uh, and yeah, having my imagination shaped by writers like Vonnegut and also by writers like Tolkien has probably been really good at keeping me alive because on the one hand, I don't lose hope, but on the other hand, I don't have 
completely naive faith in the goodness of other people. <laughs> it's a good balance. Yeah, it's it is kind of interesting to compare how rosy the predictions were for the internet back in the late nineties, early two thousands of I was going to usher in this new era of connectedness and empathy and human <laughs> understanding um, versus how we all kind of feel about the internet now. <laughs> it's going to um, it's going to be the democratization of all ideas. Oh, side note: all most ideas are really bad ideas and should not be democratized. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the probably the millionth person to uh, point this out, but you know, a lot of people compared the advent of the internet to the advent of the printing press back in the end of the medieval era or the beginning of the early modern era. And, you know, everybody was rosy about the printing press when it first happened, but what actually happened after the printing press showed up, like Europe was plunged into constant wars for the next 200 years. So apparently we learned all the wrong lessons from Gutenberg. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, mixed um, blessings. yeah. Yeah. Um, Finally, we've talked about identity, human nature. Let's talk about truth. Is there such a thing as truth? What is truth? 100% there is such a thing as truth. I think I'm probably going to crib a little bit from my answer about identity in that I do believe there is truth. I believe there is absolute truth. I believe that it's not an abstraction, but something that is real and is knowable in the sense that there there's discrete right and wrong. Um, and that is an organizing principle of all of reality. Is it knowable to fallen human beings? Not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, like, like I said, I think that God knows truth. God is truth. And, he has created everything there is. So that's kind of been woven into reality. But dang, if humanity is just really bad at discovering the, <laughs> what that is, you know, we, we complicate things a lot through various um, fallen nature sorts of behaviors and mindsets. So um, it's, it's not a, a terribly useful answer to say that, <laughs> There is truth, but we never know what it is. But I, I think it's maybe that's, I don't know, that's my answer and I'm sticking to it, I guess. Anything else you want to say to listeners? Anything you want to plug? Uh, well, where can people find you? Uh, sort of I, I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to plug the, the podcast that I co-host. Um, it's called Seeing and Believing. If any of your listeners... Uh, heard the thing about the life and death in, of Colonel Blimp, and instead of being repulsed by it, we're like, hey, I want to hear more talking like that. Seeing and Believing is the <laughs> podcast for you. Uh, my co-host Wade Beard and I get together every week, and we talk about movies, mostly new releases in theaters and on streaming, but occasionally we do retrospectives or uh, talk about other topics we just had our 200th episode where we talked about our five cardinal virtues of cinema, like the things that we value most about movies. And uh, I was pretty happy with how that discussion turned out. And it's kind of a, maybe a handy Rosetta Stone for why I think the way I do about various movie-related topics. So I guess that's my plug is go listen to Seeing and Believing. It's on iTunes or on ChristinPopCulture.com. Uh, you can listen to us. Uh, and new episodes are every Friday. 
Cool beans. All right, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke Harrington. Um, I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on the internet at luketharrington.com or track me down on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. Imagine that. Um, and I will see you guys around. Goodbye, internet. Bye, internet. My hope is that this podcast will not be a quote-unquote Christian podcast specifically and that it will not be a quote-unquote leftist podcast either. Um, I do intend to have people on that I disagree with and hopefully people I disagree with sharply. Um, But you've probably gathered by this point that I am something of a theologically conservative or traditionalist Christian and something of a political leftist, which is an unusual combination in America, but I, in modern America, I should say, but um, it's very easy for Americans especially to be myopic about the way politics and religion work together. There are many, many parts of the world and times in history when Christians have been the left-leaning ones and the left-leaning ones have been Christians. Um, I tell people that I ended up somewhere on the political left because I took the time to, to actually read the Bible. Like um, The current Republican Party platform I discovered would you know not only be completely alien to Jesus and the Church Fathers, but even kind of alien to Moses. Um, there is nothing nothing um republican about the the law that moses gave to israel in the in the torah my concern is that i don't want my political views to inform my religious views like god forbid that should happen um i have friends on in the religious right i have friends on the in the religious left and i find them all kind of obnoxious for the same reason which is you know, maybe they arrived at their political views through an honest reading of scripture or an honest understanding of Christianity. Um, but once they have decided, hey, I'm on the right, you see them signing up with every single facet of the Republican Party platform. Or on the other hand, once they decided, hey, I'm on the left, you see them signing off on every bit of the Democratic platform. And as a Christian, I should know just in principle that political platforms are going to be problematic like all of them i should treat all of them with a degree of skepticism like if a political platform is the creation of a human being which they all are then they are going to be flawed and often wrong um and i hope that's part of what this podcast ends up conveying that if you have religious beliefs then you have something that you believe is fundamentally true about the universe and then everything about you your politics included should flow from that not the other way around not you sign up with a political party and then you mold your religious beliefs to fit in with whatever that political party has decided is true that week um, and I think um, Kevin's views are a good example of that, and I hope that they inspire you to think a bit more deeply about both your politics and whatever religious beliefs you have.
Um, that's it for this week. I want to thank the I want to thank Kevin for being on the show this week, and I want to thank the Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Raven Creek Social Club is a great little site. I've been listening to their Faith and Other Oddities podcast lately, and it is a great little podcast if you're looking for something about the Bible that's not overly preachy or overly theological. It's informed. It's honest. You should check it out. If you want to support me, you should Google my novel, Ophelia Alive. It's got nothing at all to do with what we talk about on this podcast. It's a psychological ghost thriller. Um, It's pretty good. But anyway, that's it for this week. I will see you next time.